bootstrapping it, picking yourself up by your bootstraps. It implies that you're going it alone, or really, it implies attempting the impossible. How could you possibly pick yourself up by your bootstraps? In the realm of startup businesses, particularly in the tech industry, bootstrapping refers to relying on one's own resources and ingenuity, cobbling together finances, and forging your own path. The surf industry was built on bootstrapping. From John Severson founding Surfer Magazine, Gordon Clark and Hobie Alter starting Clark Foam, to Bob McKnight founding Quicksilver by selling board shorts out of the back of his van, our industry was founded on individuals with a singular focus who envisioned a much grander surfing world than the one that they were living in. In today's episode of Surf Splendor, we bring you two such individuals, both of whom build surfboards. Surfboard shaping is perhaps the least glamorous and least financially rewarding way to make a living in the surf industry, which makes it all the more interesting to explore and examine. Usually, as you know, on this show when we interview shapers, it's somebody famous who's made boards for dozens of pro surfers, and we basically just discuss their history. Today we're taking kind of a different angle. While both these guys are actually incredibly astute board builders, these interviews are more focused on the motivating factors, the perseverance, and the drive mechanisms that compel someone to build surfboards for a living. It's an art form, but there's plenty of math involved. It requires patience with suppliers, yet deadlines with customers. And of course, let's not forget, it's manual labor at the end of the day. So, Today, we'll shine a light on two among the unsung heroes in our industry. Firstly, we have Maurice Agnello of Edit Surfboards in San Clemente, California. And in the second half of the show, we will be with Wayne Okamoto of Oak Foils in the South Bay of Los Angeles. So I'll let Maurice say a few words and then I'll cut in with his proper introduction. By the way, I'm David Scales, and this is Surf Splendor. Thanks for joining us. It's funny, you know, surfing being so important to you, you know, and and I used to be jealous when I was younger about people that knew what they wanted to do with their lives. I mean, I didn't care how much money anybody had or anything like that. I was really jealous of the people that that knew what they wanted to do with their lives and just did it, yeah. you know, and just knew, well, even if I hit this adverse spot or this, you know, this downtrend, it doesn't matter. This is what I want to do. And, right. and, you know, and that just helps you get through it where, you know, and so it's interesting that, um, a culmination of my whole life and how I surfed and, you know, not being the best surfer and, and, you know, and all these other things, you know, but that somehow, and the relationships you've had with people and the insights you've had and touching, you know, airbrushing boards allowed me to touch. I mean, I've, you know, I've sprayed tens of thousands of boards through my career. Um, to see that maybe it all was, you know, full circle, you know, that surfing really was supposed to be a big part of your life and maybe, you know, something that you're supposed to do with your life has been kind of a new, you know, thought that, has kind of made things more gratifying, you mm. know, and then that on top of realizing that you, you, I mean, you love something so much that you've altered your life to do it. 
you know, where some people have had to, you know, do things that they didn't want to do, you know, because they just were doing the things they had to do to get by or to do this or whatever. So in a way, I just really have felt super lucky and fortunate that I've realized that surfing, you know, has been probably the single-handed biggest thing in my life, you know. So that's driving force. Yeah, exactly. Like I just feel really lucky that I that something did that for me. You know what I mean? Because I think about what it would be like if if surfing wasn't here. You know? Yeah. And I feel like yeah, it just would not be as meaningful. So it's kind of cool to be part of you know, especially as you get older and you see everyone's life and change and you know you think about all the pros that have come and gone and and you know and everything but you see like how much of an effect it has and the characters in our business mm -hmm. you know I mean there's stories and stories of just all these different characters yeah you know and their personalities and how they've you know touched surfing and people's lives and it's cool just to be part of that I guess you know? I agree yeah. again Maurice's surfboard label is called edit surfboards but he also has a really smart surfboard consignment business in the same building called Used Surf. You can check out usedsurf.com and editindustries.com. Um, the building is actually a pretty large space that incorporates hundreds of used surfboards for sale, freshly made custom boards via edit, and a bit of your standard surf shop retail necessities from traction to leashes to fins. The building is located in the San Clemente Shaping Ghetto right next to all the famous San Clemente board building brands and Rainbow Sandals is on that street as well. And we met and recorded in the second floor loft overlooking the retail space. I think around the time I was 18, I just on a whim, I went to a video production interview and it went really bad. And on a whim, I kind of swung by Surf Glass, which was owned by Ron House. And I had ridden, I rode for Stewart Surfboards when I was younger. And um, I knew my boards got glass at, at Surf Glass. And I went in there and I actually, I actually lied. I said, oh, hey, I, I work at Stewart's and, you know, like I don't work there anymore and I'm looking for a job. He immediately picks up the phone. Ron House picks up the phone and he goes, oh, okay. And he calls Bill Stewart and Stewart, um, I mostly dealt with, I think it was either Rick Hazard or Preston there, but Stewart told Ron, I recognize his name. Nothing bad comes to mind. So he's probably good. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so he goes, uh, so he goes, you're hired. Uh, we need someone to pick up and deliver to our, the Stewart's boards to their shop every day. So I was, that's how it all started. Crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. So how old did you say you were? I probably was, I bet I was 18. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I was at 18. Up until then? No, I know I was 18 because I actually was running the Ralph's liquor department. Okay. Yeah. You but, have to be 18 to work with yeah, alcohol. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I remember I was doing that and I had just been doing it all through high school and I was burned out. Yeah. So, so yeah, Ron House, pretty much my first job. And then from there... I just delivered and then, you know, the best part about that was, is Phil Edwards, I would go, I, Phil Edwards was there every day. He had a shaping room there and he has told me some amazing stories through the years. And then I would go pick up boards from Mickey Munoz, who was down the street, you know. Um, and so it's really weird that I was like a full short boarder and yet I was kind of being introduced to, yeah. you know, these people. And um, I always thought that was really, really cool looking back. 
did you have an interest in board building at the time? I don't think so. I was I was an avid server surfer, and um, I competed on an amateur level, not that necessarily that good. I did okay. And then as I actually worked for Ron, he started shaping boards for me, and then I kind of did the Pro-Am series in Huntington and finished second overall. Oh, okay. So I always knew this was the key. I, I could always kind of tell when a board worked good or it didn't work good. There was just something that, you know, I guess you hopefully would call intuition of like always being able to reference something back to something else to know whether it should be doing better or it shouldn't be doing better. Are you talking about making that assessment holding the board no, or riding, riding it? it? Okay. Riding it. Yeah. 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 Funny too, because Bushman came to town and he shaped some boards and his boards looked insane. Hmm. And so I got him to shape one and I remember holding it going like, oh, this thing's sick. And I surfed uppers. And I couldn't even get it to go. Really? Yeah, it was probably just, you know, Calif you know, that's the weird thing about trestles. It's like lowers, everything works, but uppers and some of those other places, maybe not. And right. the thing just looked, felt like it wanted waves, you know, right, and right, I thought right. about Bushman's background, where he sure. comes from. And Makes sense. Yeah, they have push, you know. So how did, um, how did that transition into kind of an interest in... Well, I guess airbrushing prior to board. Building. Right. So, yeah, I started, I did some stuff like, you know, I would install fin boxes and everything like that. And then, is it just because when you're around the shop, something needs to get done and they don't have a guy doing it? And you're Yeah. There? Somebody drops out and they're like, hey, you know, you've been here for two years. Um, if you want, you can come in at night and you can do boxes. We do this many boards a day. This is how much you probably make. And you're going like, well, I can surf all day, you know, yeah. so like I'm into it. Yeah. And then you get to learn something new. Um, I tried polishing. Polishing is really hard work. You know, I just for some reason didn't have that. And then, you know, I almost think airbrushing again was a lie. I think I had uh, a little bit of airbrushing experience, but I didn't have it on surfboards. And I remember um, Tom Sutherland and Mark Johnson were actually, you know, instrumental in me learning how to do it because. I would come in at night, like so. All of a sudden, they need they need more airbrushes, and it's like, well, I can do it, you know. And it's kind of like, okay. So then I'm there at night, and I'm just learning. I'm just trying to like, and those like, especially Mark Johnson at the time, he was the one that really, really helped me figure it out. And it was it behooved to him because you know it was like they needed more boards done, and they got done, and yeah. it was good for the glass shop, you know, and right. everything like that. So. Um, it was in everyone's best interest for me to learn, so you know, I got the assistance to do that. Right. Um, and then that just clicked. Like I loved it. I loved how exact it had to be, and I loved how you had to like match curves, pulling rails for pin lines, and it was really challenging and really hard. And then artistically, I started looking at people outside and doing, you know, like trying to incorporate some of that. And so I, I, I did it. I airbrushed for like. Harbor, Stewart's, Hobie, Dewey Weber, um, Timmy Patterson, Lost, you know, like uh, so many people, um, Roger Hines and, and all that stuff. And uh, so I kind of felt like I was successful in that, in that category. Sure. And I, I love doing it. Um, the shaping thing kind of came accidentally, to be honest. It, it did. How's that? What's um, that story? So I'm airbrushing and, you know, I would almost have to say that Midget Smith is probably single-handedly responsible for me learning how to shape. Okay. And the reason for that is maybe not a good one. Okay. I, I had ridden a board of his and I loved it. And it was like in the top five all-time best boards. 
And we tried probably five times to replicate that. And I just never, ever got it. Sure. So something in me was like frustrated. And something in me was like almost mad at him. Like, well, why, why wasn't he trying harder to figure out how to get it to be that way? And I started thinking about like profiling machines, which seemed like they were popular in Australia. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I thought about that. And I thought, well, this, this makes sense. You know what I mean? I mean, they're not machines, but they're, they, you know, you put the rocker thing on the side and you're planing the curve and it should be consistent. And, and so anyway, that was where I wanted to be heading. But, you know, I had to figure out the basics first. Yeah. And Midget Smith, you know, let me do that, you know, in his shaping room and use his planer and all that other stuff. Um, so it, it began, but the next phase of it was really what kicked it into gear, which was honestly the machine. Yeah. And not just that, but at the exact same time, I was, I, I had the little used board shop in front of Basham's and Clark foam had gone down, you know, they were, they were closed down. And so, um, Brad came to me and said, I want to do a shop with you. And I said, yeah, let's do it because I'm just getting to the tip of the iceberg. I think like this thing could be really huge. So we did that. And then I was like, we need to make our own brand, our own label, have our own boards. And so from there, I basically started just kind of writing everything that I was doing. And then kind of actually looking to other shapers to like, um, like uh, I collaborated with Cooney for one of the models, uh, Kevin Coonhart, and um, and then as I was designing, I was busy running the shop, so I was letting Rick Rock and Chris Kaysen and and Maurice Guinness finish the boards, and then politics started happening. It was like crazy. It was like, well, Rick Rock's not under the roof. Why are you giving him boards? And it was well because Kaysen charges too much, and Mod Maurice working at Lost during the day, then he's doing his orders, and then ours are taking too long, and then it was just like, I'm doing it myself. Yeah. And that was when, you know, I just pretty much went head first into it and just started doing, you know, all of it, designing them and finishing them and everything like that. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you talked about the, the initial necessity being driven by trying to recreate the perfect board or the magic board. Right. Um, do you feel like you've ever cracked that code? You know, I think, I think that part's actually impossible um, because I think there's, you know, people say that like, I've heard people say like, oh, the last three inches of the board don't matter, you know, and, uh, you know, shape-wise, tail-wise or whatever. And I think I've found that every little thing actually matters. Seems like it. Yeah, I mean, how, I mean, the very foundation of the stringer is probably flexing differently than, you know what I mean? There's got to be inconsistencies in the wood and the grain and, you know. No two are identical. Right, exactly. So for that reason, you know, I think you get close and it's, and, and I think in a lot of ways you're really close. And, and uh, maybe the best part of that is, is that, you know, simultaneously while you can maybe end up with something better, you can end up with something worse, but, you know, um, without those two contrasts, you know what I mean? One mm-hmm. woman exists with the other. So I think you get really close, you yeah. know? I mean, with the machine, the machine's kind of made that possible. Okay. I think. I think the machine's made that, that pretty... It's narrowed. I think it's narrowed the threshold yeah. down, you know, to really a, a small amount. So yeah. then, 
And then the other thing is, is, you know, that's like, like you talk about Kelly Slater. I mean, that's ultra sensitivity, yeah. you know, versus somebody who's is just happy that they're going faster than they've ever gone before. Well, Kelly's ultra sensitivity, ultra sensitive, but also has a 25, 30 year relationship working with the same shaper right. and they're finely tuned together. And he'll say like, recreate this for, this was magic. Right. And so uh, Merrick will do 10. Right. And Kelly will just be like, this one's kind of close, but the other nine aren't even close. Exactly. And it's like, exactly. what? Yeah. How yeah. crazy is that? I know. It's crazy. I was also thinking about like, um, like if you could, how much you're tucking the rails in and where you're tucking them in, how far back towards the tail and then having the sander, like, you know, do the edge the same and then you have wood. Um, the one good possibility is maybe composite stringers holding some type right. of more consistent yeah. situation. Um, and that, you know, but that doesn't seem to have come full, you know, fruition either really. Like, but, but you're right. Once you start, once there's other people's hands involved in the project, yeah. then it's completely an open. Yeah, totally. Like, That's what I really dig like about like Roger Hines as an example, you know, because I get stuff back from the glass where I'm like, ah, oh, that edge, I wish it was just, you know, and then I might have another model that need, needs more edge. And, and I always, you know, I, I really respect a lot of what he does. And, and I always think that is the ultimate. You went from beginning to yeah, end. Yeah, I mean, he's touching it every step of the way. I mean, that's pretty much the ultimate, yeah. I think. Yeah. You know? Um, Do you have any interest in expanding um, your own kind of board building to incorporate all, that, all those yeah, steps? Yeah, yeah. Like, um, it, it's always a matter of, of uh, to, around here it's space. You know what I mean? It's hard to get space. And you don't want to have to, like, van it up the street, you know, to the right. commercial area, you know? Um but yeah, I, I have a lead on, on something for the future in this area and uh, we'll probably take that opportunity. And, and uh, it, you know, I mean, in one way, I, I, you know, you, you would love to build your brand and, and offer your boards to a, a large amount of people. But at the same time, like at the end of the day, you want to feel like, I think the most gratifying thing would be knowing that you really are, it's not just the design, it's, it's everything, you know, yeah. and that would probably be the most gratifying thing from beginning to end and handing it off to somebody and, totally. and then them going like, I love this, you know? And Well, let's talk about edit and what is, um, what do you guys build at edit? Who's your main clientele? What styles of boards? That sort of stuff. Um, so I guess, uh, edit, I mean, start off pretty much as kids, like, you know, guys in town, mostly just friends of mine, young adults, you know? And, um, from there, it's like lately I've grabbed a pretty good little chunk of the like the younger crowd, and then I've also had some older guys that I've seen the demographic kind of widen. Okay. Um, my board's pretty much. I guess the other good part about like me growing up here and surfing here was that I think a lot of people feel like I make a good board for San Clemente. Um, it's kind of a unique spot. Like if you surf State Park or or if you surf you know like Creek all the time then that's, you know, that's something where the board can have more curve in it and because that wave pushes harder. But there's some days where, like, you go surf the pier and it kind of looks good and it doesn't really surf that good. And uh, so I think it's I think it's been really kind of fun and challenging to try and make a board, you know, that works in a, a lot of different facets of the San Clemente wave, from lowers to church and middles and right. uppers to... so. I would have to say that, you know, my foundation actually has been speed.
because um, I've surfed places that are slopy. I mean, I went through a, a phase where I surfed church every day for like four years. And it was like, I rode so many of my boards there, you know, that it was, it was good because it was always like, how do I get the speed, you know? Mm. And I actually think the, the second half of the duration that I've been doing boards has been um, almost now, like as better surfers have gotten on them, it's kind of like, whoa, dude, this board's so fast, you know, but they're carving tighter turns. So that's been the thing that has been kind of cool is like I had a good speed foundation and now I'm just, you know, venturing into getting more curve in the boards. And so I think that combination has been making for a, a good board. And, you know, I, uh, I, I try and, you know, get as much feedback as I can from everybody. Yeah. And, and it's usually like pretty good. That's so I'm pretty be stoked. Yeah. 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 So, but in a weird kind of way, I'd have to say that it's been kind of, you know, the intermediate advanced surfer that you know i mean um that has been the majority of, of yeah. yeah more high performance boards yeah i think so but with a full hybrid sure yeah i mean not just short boards. right like i've always i've always just had a little bit of a wider nose than average you know yeah. like when stuff was 11 and a half it would be 12 and now they're 12 and a half and and uh and everything and actually kind of being in the shop has kind of let me eavesdrop on the the um, you know the consciousness of, of like where the the customers going like what models are relating to asking about and hearing you know their demands and and desires for their board that they're looking for and that's kind of helped me also just really feel like oh this is a legitimate like paradigm shift you know as far as what people are after and stuff yeah. like that and you know keep it evolving well let's talk about the shop now um what is used surf how did it come to be um when did it come to be i think it started in 2005 and it was funny because i had i was thinking to myself it was really based on the internet you know i i was like okay this internet thing when you go look for a used board the way you do it is you basically figure out and plot out your four stops in town. You know what I mean? Because you're not gonna, unless the magic one is there, you gotta cover all your bases. Yeah. And I knew with the internet, like what was gonna happen was people would love to look for it just in the comfort of their home or wherever they're at. And so I remember actually, I just was moving some stuff. I found the original sheet. I, I had um, had uh, dinner with my girlfriend at the time and um, I had written out the actual reason why this was going to be good versus the way that, you know, the old way versus the new way. And um, the idea was to take the photos of, of the boards, top and bottom, put them online with a description of, you know, um, blemishes and dents and dings and everything sure. like that. And put it online because I knew, you know, there was a demand for it. I knew it was a niche and I knew there was a demand. And... I asked Brad Basham, uh, this is before I went into business with him, I, I just said, can I, I was airbrushing for him, and I said, can I get a little space? And he said, yeah, I'll let you do that. So he carved out a little spot where his office was and put walls up, and I had basically like two closets in an L shape and um, put racks in there and everything like that and, and started doing it. And I remember, you know, someone asking about a board online and then buying it and shipping it and everything like that. And you're like, well, this is crazy. You know, I mean, like this is, this is crazy. Um, but you know, it didn't really, it didn't really like 
I didn't do it full time. I was airbrushing and I had my number on the window and I said, if you're out front and you want to come look at a board, give me a call. Um, and so uh, I, you know, I'd run out there, I'd quit airbrushing and I'd run out there and help him out and stuff like that. And Brad at the time wasn't selling boards at all. He was okay. selling blanks. You yeah. know, I mean, he was just a huge Clark foam distributor and, right. and stuff like that. So, um, so what has the business evolved into then? In the so, last 10 so years? yeah, it actually almost pretty much went away. I, I was going to close it. I, I switched it over to like a Craigslist free listing thing, and I started going to Saddleback for website stuff for Flash and everything. And um, I went to Costa Rica, and I I uh, came back and. I think actually Clark Foam had gone, shut its doors, and somebody had said they wanted to do a shop with me, but I really wanted to do it with Brad. And I went to Brad and I said, you know, we should do a shop. And he said, Clark Foam's done. My whole program's got to be changed. He's like, let's do this. And so, kicked the website back up, knowing that that was a niche and that would really complement what we were doing. And and then it just you know just kind of went full bore. And so. What has happened since then was actually as Edit started getting you know a f foothold in the market locally, um, Brad had to deal with a lot of complications that came from that with other shapers, and so we actually amicably parted ways, and so when I did, I you know um, basically took you surf and said you know like well what I came in with I'm going to leave with, mm -hmm. and. Um, and everything and wasn't sure what I was going to do with it and I had this little office and some friends kept bringing me boards and I'd sell them on Craigslist and then um, I finally got a spot downstairs and I'm like I'm, I'm gonna do this you know yeah. and so um, what happened was is I actually got lucky because Dean Reynolds had all this space and it was all clothes and Ecuadorian purses and jewelry and um, as he would burn through his inventory and not re-up it, he would like have some space and I'd be like, can I get that? And just slowly but surely, we would take up more and I took up half the building. And then finally he was like, I'm done with retail. And I was like, you know, we keep growing, we keep yeah. growing. And, um, and then with the infusion of, you know, bringing in the, the fins and everything like that, um, it just, it just blew up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but now we, it's not it, unofficially. And you know, from what I can tell and from what everyone has said, I mean, we're the largest used board place in, in the United States. I think surf station maybe, uh, was like possibly our competition, but I went to their website one day and count how many boards they had and they had like 180 or something like that. And we have like 350 and now we probably have 400. Wow. Yeah, so Crazy. now this place is full on, you know? Yeah. yeah, it's like Euros come here and like when they're visiting and they buy their boards and then, you know, so. Awesome. Yeah, so it's grown into something cool. Perfect kind of um, synergistic relationship too between the edit thing and a little bit of fresh retail, a little bit of used retail, totally. a little bit of everything. Yeah, I've, I've really considered myself lucky and not really seen how, how, uh, good that they're complimenting each other you know I have I've, I have a built-in audience for edit exactly and then at the same time you know um, like I said I, I mean learning what people want and what they like and yeah. everything like that has really helped me and and you know we actually haven't even I've been so busy like I I have not been able to do stocks for this place yeah and that's gonna be the next phase sure. you know but but how lucky is it that you know you know you have 
this whole audience and mm -hmm. now you have a venue you know so I, I know that's probably what a lot of shapers would love to totally. kind of have and so for that just to kind of fall in my lap has been really really lucky yeah not exactly though I mean you worked for it and you took advantage of opportunities and uh, I'll tell you man uh, to be honest, I've never worked so hard in my life. Yeah. I mean, it literally, you know, I, I was lucky because up until I did this, I took four trips a year and, at, and for like five years in a row, one of those trips was a month long, you know, I mean, I went to, I went to uh, Morocco and Spain for a month, you know, I went to Australia and, and Bali for a month. And, uh, you know, and I'm pretty much a surf bum. I mean, I really am. I mean, I, I, I I've lost relationships because of it. I, you know, I mean, I've even limited how nice of a car that I have because I don't want a car payment or insurance or anything like that in where I live. And so, um, in a way, I'm lucky because I did so much of that that when I started to see an opportunity, it at least allowed me to go like, man, I've done a lot and I can, you know, um, yeah. now I can go head first into this, but it literally is 12 hours a day, like six, sometimes seven days a week. Crazy. And you get burned out. Like oh, right yeah. now I'm so burned out. Right. I cannot wait to like just, you know, have a day off or trying to hire people and all that other stuff. But um, I definitely felt like, you know, I, I gave it a good effort and yeah. to have that grow, to have that work out has been really gratifying. Good. Yeah. Good. Not Good. to mention some people that help you along the way. Cool. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Edit industries.com and usedsurf.com are Maurice's two websites and businesses. We'll also have links to both on surfsplendorpodcast.com along with photos and other visuals that accompany this piece. My next guest is Wayne Akamoto. Wayne is a Los Angeles native from an area known as the South Bay, which includes Manhattan Beach, uh, Redondo Beach, El Segundo, Hermosa Beach, 
and it's an area that has a really rich surf culture and board building history dating all the way back through the 50s. Wayne's woven into the fabric of the past 40 years, but he maintains a very low profile, hardly participates in much self-promotion. He just quietly toils away in an anonymous industrial complex three miles inland from the beach, which, if you know anything about that area, three miles sounds close to the beach, but it literally equates to a 15-minute drive. And um, anyway, Wayne's board label is called Oak Foils. And his path into and through board building is truly one of a kind. It's a long story, but uh, I just uh, was interested in uh, trying to improve my boards and the performance out of the boards. And, uh, you know, I never really had an inside connection to the whole board manufacturing. So for myself, I'm all self-taught. Oh, Uh, really? Yeah. So I've never, like, apprenticed under anyone and learn, you know, learn the trade, so to say. Um, I was just kind of an outside kid. I was uh, just doing my own thing on the side and just kind of learned by stripping down old long boards in the early 70s. I was, oh, wow. the first board I shaped, I was 12 years old. Wow. And we would, you know, have like these uh, garage parties, shaping parties basically where, you know, as kids would get together and uh, find some old long boards and strip them down and we'd all take turns whittling on it. Really? Yeah. And, was uh, your dad, I mean, did your dad have the tools or was he into surfing and shaping or like how did you even? Uh, no, it was kind of weird because, uh, you know, shaping back in the days, all you need is some basic hand tools. You know, we didn't even have correct lighting. Right. Uh, you know, it was just more, more or less just going through the motion. Sure. You know, that was the fun part. Yeah. And uh, that just started the... The long road, man. <laughs> Do you remember what that first longboard was? Uh, oh, man. I mean, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember some some Bing Nose Riders that we whittled down, some old cons, uh, Ricks, Jacobs. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, now so when I look back on it, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, back in those days, you couldn't give those boards away. Right. Everyone had one in the garage, and right. you couldn't give them away. Right. So you and know, everybody wanted shorter boards. Everyone was going shorter, and that whole revolution of like designing new, new, you know, using your imagination and designing a board of how you would think, right, where you want to go on the wave, you know, right. and, and designing a board that way. So, well, who who were you looking up to in terms of guys who were surfing shorter boards that were going directions that you wanted to go on waves? Right. Like. Uh, God, there were so many. You know, I wasn't really, in myself personally, uh, I was more into the flow. I, I really liked the, the guys that rode the longer boards, um, like, like Lopez okay. and Barry Kaniapuni and Tiger Espear and guys like that that, that kind of charged on the larger waves. Uh, the whole shortboard revolution was a little after I started uh, shaping, you know, maybe a decade or two. And then the twin fin the Simon thruster and that all came into came into play but um, yeah I know I wish I could have you a nice elaborate story of you know working under some great shapers and whatnot but no and you know still to this day I'm kind of still like that I just kind of like doing my own thing and out of the out of the limelight so to say I kind of like just being you know yeah ambiguous <laughs> sure so how um when did it transition into what you realized would be a career? 
Um, you know, it's my background. It's kind of strange because a lot of people don't really know my background. But um, <clears throat> I realized early on because I started shaping pre-teenage. And by the time I was in my mid-teens, I was shaping, you know, for all my friends and, and you know, a lot of the local guys. And uh, just a small little, you know, sampling of guys, just the local kids. But it was enough to keep my chops going. But I realized at a young age that I have to do a 360 to make it, to enjoy the shaping aspect. Um, so I realized that I had to get a profession, get my ducks in a row, and still do it, you know, as I enjoy it. It's like you, so, if you're relying on shaping for the income, it'll add too much stress. Well, so you gotta yeah. have like an actual profession. And, yeah, and exactly. I, I realized that at a young age. Just, just, you know, I just go, I, I, I don't, I don't want to live like these guys. Right. I mean, I respect them and everything, oh, of but course, you yeah. know, you know, by then, you know, I was kind of already like dealing with the glassers and alternative um, shapers that were around, and you know. Um, it just that lifestyle didn't really appeal to me, you know, really. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I've, I've had to like, you know, go full circle. So my whole background, I, it goes back to like, you know, I did a lot of like uh, machining and custom car painting. And oh, I, okay. I, you know, as a teenager, I did that also and <clears throat> got into um, uh, uh, dental uh, restorations, maxillofacial restorations. And I did a lot of that, you know, with people that have like uh, really traumatic injuries, and we have to reconstruct their their face and like their jawbone and stuff like that. I work with the surgeons and, and really, yeah, to to like machine uh, pieces. Yeah, actually fabricate like reconstruct their jawline with wow. implants. Wow. Using high noble alloys. Wow. Um, you know, platinum, your palladiums, your golds. Uh, and then doing a lot of ceramic works where you build up layering of like ceramics. Interesting. And then carving and grinding it. So for me, the that was like a very uh, natural transition. So did that require college education? No, everything those? that I've done, I'm all pretty much self-taught. Okay. You know, I, there's a certain thing of me where I, I guess I'm just kind of. It's more about the journey. Yeah. Um, and I've always was taught that you know, knowledge without. Um, practice isn't really knowledge yeah so I have always got into the aspect of like just you know learning on my own and then that led on doing you know dealing with high nobles I then it allowed me to deal in um, <clears throat> you know high noble alloys <clears throat> I did a little bit of that and uh, that led down into the road of like uh, making and creating uh, jewelry custom jewelry so I did a little bit of that hmm. um, I don't know if you know that whole hip-hop scene when the grill started coming in. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I taught a few guys how to do that, you know. <laughs> and those guys went off. and I, At the time, I just thought it was a crazy thing. But they're asking me how to do this. So I developed this whole system where these guys could just take the impression, you know, down at the jewelry mart. You just never know where the road takes you. And for me, I've always been interested in so much more of the process, mm. you know. And so... You know, when I was younger, I was able to multitask quite a bit, you know, so I enjoyed, you know, doing a lot of that. Uh, being in the dental industry, it allowed me a lot of free time to do other ventures also. So, I mean, that's just a small part of it. You know, I got into restoring and importing exotic cars mm -hmm. and did that for a while. Uh, you know, just all kinds of little weird little things and right. professions. But 
the one thing that's always been constant in my life since I was a kid is shaping boards. Really? And uh, I picked the the least lucrative, yeah. the hardest on my body. I mean, my body's like literally falling apart, you know, because of it. And uh, I still enjoy it. You know, do I you? still, yeah, it stokes me out, you know. It's what about the, it do you like as compared to those other things? Um, you're doing it more because you're allowing an individual to take a journey somewhere that's so personal that you're making someone's dreams come true and you're the interface, you're the stylus between you and the individual and, and then the journey they want to go on, on that wave, you know. And everybody's so different that you have to be able to, because every all the boards that I do, or every single board that I do has a name to it. They're all customs, and it takes you know it's taken me a long time to develop enough customers to trust me, because I don't really have a name per se, you know, commercial name. So it's it's been a long road, you know. But it just I like to struggle. Do you? Yeah, it's real. <laughs> struggle is real. Yeah, it is. <laughs> But it's you know, it's the journey. It's yeah, the struggle. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess for my whole life I've always struggled and have to, like all everything that I've done, all those different, uh, you know, professions or whatever. I'm all self-taught. Right. I I've never worked under anybody, hmm. and no one's really ever like taught me how to do certain things. I've just developed on my own. Um, yeah. So I've always been intrigued by those kind of like black art kind of like areas, you know, where there's really no school. And yeah. shaping's one of them, you know? <laughs> well, you're right, and I can see the glamour in that or kind of the allure of it, I guess. But the downside of it is, how do you cultivate the client base to really maintain the business? You know what I mean? Right. I, and I and think, not just with surfing, but with even the dental industry. Right. You know? I think they would want to see a degree on your wall before they're willing to do business uh -huh. with you. And so, I've always been a person that... I, the actions speak louder than words, you know, and uh, when you can deliver, half the job is done. Right. You know? Yeah. And and trust takes time mm -hmm. and, you know, it just comes through every time you deliver, you know. Uh, you're only as good as your last board. Right. <laughs> and that's what I like about this industry, you know. Yeah. You know, you're only as good as your last board because it not only has to look aesthetically appealing, it has to function the way the individual, you develop the shape for that particular individual. Right. And that's the, always the challenge for me. Yeah, well, I, how does that relationship work with the client then? And um, how do you develop business? Is it all referral? Do you advertise anywhere? I mean, how has your business grown over it's the years? All, uh, for myself, it's always been just word of mouth. Just word of mouth. Yeah. And then keeping the customers that you do have, and you know, obviously you're never going to be a hundred percent, but usually if they're trusting, I could I could get it within the first or second board to right. be able to build that trust. Yeah, and uh, which I think a lot of that just has to do with um, communication skill. Exactly. Well, on your behalf for sure, but also on their behalf. On their behalf like they also. need to be able to communicate their needs. You right. have to be able to decipher what they're actually saying. Yeah, you have to be a psychologist because a lot of guys will oversell themselves. Oh yeah. You know, for so sure. you have to look between read between the lines, like actually look at the board they're riding, see where the footwells are. That tells you exactly what the person needs. And all these little cues are like going on and you have to be able to decipher it and then be very um, 
I don't know how you would say cordial to yeah. you know sell your point you know not tell them they suck <laughs> you should be writing more foam you know you know but that's up to me as an artist and the actual designer to you know give them what they want aesthetically yeah but then explaining your part why you did something a certain way right so they're gonna you know right no, interesting you know it's, it's shaping customs is a challenge a lot of the shapers nowadays they're just all kind of more or less you know just shaping what's in vogue and it doesn't take a lot of skills to really shape a nice looking board if you have good eye hand coordination you know you can whittle out a nice looking board it's it's knowing how to formulate a board for an individual for the way they want to go in their surfing is right. that takes a long time to learn right and that's the other thing is it does seem like it takes a long time just to even have those conversations with a client right and develop that kind of relationship to get them what they really need yeah and it's a lot of work it's a lot of work man i spent a lot of this is the most challenging i think profession of all the things that i've done to actually yeah i mean the other other fields are really rewarding and it's um you know monetarily that's really rewarding but you know nothing like making a board there's there's something something there you know functional art man it's functional art it's a true craft you know ultimately at the end of the day the product has to function oh yeah you know it doesn't matter how beautiful how bitching the gloss finishes or whatever if it doesn't work for the individual you you failed as a shaper right you know and that's always the challenge for me i always enjoy that part of it well let's talk about design a little bit um um do you design on the computer or how do you how do you operate uh no everything that i do it all goes back to my hand analog shapes so what i like to do is because my background goes back to hand shaping right and so i like to develop my boards by hand and then through constant you know refinements um like today what i'll do is i have a new board that i just shaped and uh what i'll do is I'll either start off with a program that I already have, that's from a hand shape, and then there's certain aspects of it that I like that I'll keep, and then I'll reshape it by hand, and then redigitize the surface of that new board and create a new generation. So the DNA is always, always evolving, and I keep a really detailed Excel file of every single board and every customer, and so I have a spreadsheet, and I can see exactly which rockers work for certain individuals and certain weights. A certain type of surf in their experience, and then it's it, you know the numbers don't lie. Right. Um, Interesting though, it starts off by a hand shape, then you scan it. And yes, yes. I do a true 3D scan now. I don't use slices. Which, okay. Which is really common now. Yeah. That's one of the main reasons why a lot of the shapes, they all look the same, uh, is because it, the if you're designing on the computer and you're using slices, those slices uh, are locked into a certain length. And then there's a, al- uh, a developed algorithm in the software that will create that surface for you. Right. So if you're a shaper in Australia and a shaper in Japan and a shaper in California, and someone says, I'll make a 5.9, it gives you the exact dimension, 19 inch, you know, 14 and a half inch tail, it will make the same exact curve. Right. You know, and you have these control points that you could try to tweak, but those control points are using interpolated numerics. So it's, you, what you see on the screen, it won't cut on the machine. Right. And that's, see, I've been down this road. I was probably one of the first guys around that actually built my own machine and, and actually learned how to program and learn how to digitize and still hand shape. 
So it took that, you know, I understand the whole process. A lot of guys don't understand the process, so they, they kind of sold their bamboos into buying these pre-made machines that are made for shaping, but they don't realize that <laughs> another guy with the same machine are shaping the same curves, you know. Yeah. You, you could go in there and kind of alter it a little bit, but the control points are interpolated, so yeah, it, it defeats the purpose, really. And it really does come down to the fine details. For in, me, that's how I look at it, because you're you don't, at that point, you're not utilizing the technology to the maximum. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You're, you're, you're getting a compromised product that's just basically squaring and plumbing out the blank for you. Right. There's so much detail, but you have to do by hand that at that point, you're losing... What's the use of calculating volume when you have to go in and shape, you know, a third of the board? Right. <laughs> it just defeats the purpose. Where I like to go in there, it's, it's the actual shape of the surface of the board and pick up tens of thousands of individual points along the board. Um, but it's a completely different. No one does it the way I do it. Right. Um, Interesting. I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't come across anyone. But then it comes down to learning the program and understanting writing code. And that that's, takes a long time. That took a long time for me to learn. Well, is there a program, a software program that exists for what you do? Or did you have to manufacture yeah, I it use, on your I own? use uh, post-processors where I have the program take the numerical data. Then I go back in and edit it and post-process it. And you okay. got to know how to write the post-process programs. Got it. To, to, to create the surface that you want. Got um, it. And there's so all these little, you know, things that you have to know that... Um, it's it's just a long road, they, you know. They don't, I don't think there's any schools that really teach it. I mean, you could go probably go to technical schools and learn the basic part of it, but you're going to need ten years down the road after you get out of school just to get the opportunity to be able to develop what you need to develop. You know, yeah. as opposed to just spending the hours, Learning. write write a code and go put it in the machine and go wonder what this does. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's like deciphering the Rosetta Stone. <laughs> Do you have anybody um, working under you who has an interest in learning this? Man, you know, I just do everything myself. I've just been so, I'm just driven to like not rely on people as much, at least as possible. I don't know why. It's but just, I would think there'd be somebody who wants to glean this unique knowledge. <laughs> Let me know if you find someone. <laughs> I'm serious. It's crazy. Mean, it's the craziest thing because people come in and they just look at what I do. And they're just like, man, there's so much stuff to learn. They're overwhelmed. Yeah. You know, so it's it's very hard and there's no there's no money in it. You know, for yeah. me it's the it's the it's the journey. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. The, you know. I can't wait to get here every morning, dude. Right. And I'm here till like late. Yeah, there's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough hours in the day. Yeah. Well what happened if I do this? Oh wow, I just learned something new, right? right. It's, and you're learning on your own, so you kinda it's it's a crazy process, but um well, it's what's interesting, I think, um, I don't know, maybe this accounts for the hiccup of why other people aren't interested, is it takes a very unique brain uh, composition, because like, it is mathematics, but it's also very creative mm -hmm. you know it's it's utilizing both sides of the brain right, to, yeah. um, to, to a certain a, degree, yeah yeah, because yeah, I was never scholastic, you know, in school, I mean yeah you know, the highest math I took in high school was high school math. I was a woodshop guy that had three periods of woodshop. Right, you know? <laughs> right. And it went surfing in the afternoon. <laughs> well, so that's the other element. It's mathematics, it's creativity, 
But then there's the actual technical aspect of using your hands and being able to craft something, yeah, which is exactly. where the wood shop comes in. Right. Where it's kind of like, I'm pretty good intellectually or whatever, but I'm not very good with my hands. Right, Like, right. I'm not going to fix too much. And know? see, and that's how I was. I didn't really know that I had a basic knack for math. It wasn't until I learned on my own later on. Yeah. Like, how do I formulate? And so when... People, when other guys that are engineers look at my math and see how I calculate and get to a, a finite number, they crack up because they go, how the heck did you figure that out? I just go, well, you know, I just, I, I figure out a factor and I, I do this and then I just go, wow. They have a simple equation probably to yeah, get there. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I took the low road, you know. Right. <laughs> classic. It's classic. <laughs> they just crack up, you know. Well, um, let's talk about the actual boards that you're building. What, if you had to... Um, define maybe a style of board that you're known for uh -huh. could you um that's just the crazy thing i mean i do everything i do everything from traditional nose rider long boards to um you know high performance short boards you know i don't limit myself i try to be able to do everything pretty decent you know it's um and it's hard you know but being able to utilize the computer processing and and saving your, my shapes, it helps a lot because mm -hmm. I don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're hand shaping, there's a certain element of like having to reinvent the wheel each time. At least with the computer process, the way I do it, I just have to nail it once. Then I can capture that time and moment, capture all my analog data digitally. So it's recorded digitally, but it's analog numerics that are saved. So it captures the actual essence of the hand shapes. Interesting. You know, as opposed to relying yeah. on the computer slices, you know. Right, yeah. Um, what, in terms of, like, getting feedback from, right, uh, improving your craft, understanding which data points translate to what effect in the water, mm -hmm. I assume you're writing your own shapes as well, so you're gaining feedback from yourself. Right. Do you have team riders that you rely on, or is it strictly... Um, no, you know, I just consider everyone that ever orders a board on the team. Yeah. I take their data just as serious as if I had a team, you know. Yeah. I don't... Being small, I can't afford to really have a team, per se, you know, like to give away free boards. Sure. You sample a board, you know, pay guys, you know. I mean, that's not really... I don't know. I'm not, I don't think surfing should really be in that format, because I, I don't know. I grew up in the 70s, so it was kind of more... I grew up around more of like, you know. Much less business minded. Yeah, less business minded and more about the craft and the art per right. se. But um, that's not to say, you know, I don't know if the opportunity arises, uh, you know, who knows. But um, I'm just wondering from a learning curve of like progressing the um, performance, ab performance, performance of, of the, the board, board itself. Right. I think if that's even beneficial or. Um, I think just over time, just naturally. Um, shaping is kind of this osmosis thing. You kind of, you kind of feel like what people are going in in general direction, um, and you know, I've been shaping for long enough to where I've shaped through different epochs of design. So uh, I understand the concept of like you know going from a single fin to a twin fin. You know, it, it's it's pretty basic. It's it's formulating the. The key thing, and the, I want to say the number one thing that helps a lot is the the rockers, and uh, I, you know, everything I start off with is a rocker, and that's where U.S. Blank comes in, and where they're you know the best as far as like just keeping records of the rockers and being able to alter the rockers accurately. Right. 
because I'm, I'm deck rocker centric. You know, everything I design, that's the first thing I look at is I'll go into the Excel file, you know, categorize the individual and what, where he wants to go with, with the type of board. And then I'll look at the rocker templates and work, what rocker templates work for certain individuals. And it's, I have like, you know, 35 years of like Excel file mm. of every customer that I've done. And so, you know, the weight and all that stuff, the weight, height, shoe size, inseam. Wow. And so I could break it all down really quickly. And wow. Just, you know, analyze the data. Let, <clears throat> let's break it down very simplistically. Um, why is rocker so important? Because that's the foundation of where everything generates, where you're paddling, you're laying on the board. That's the first surface that your body touches, and that's what your body interprets. You know, that's, that's where your, your body starts interpreting. And then from there, you start calculating everything out, you know. I don't know. It's, cra it's a crazy. When I talk to other shapers, they, you know, they're all bottom-centric. Right. Rocker, you know. So, yeah, just a different way of looking at it, I guess. But hmm. Talking about the boards that you design, what materials do you like working with? Uh, I, poly, EPS, what stringer types? What? Yeah, I prefer the poly. Yeah. Yeah, poly, for me, I'm old school, you know. It, it shapes accurately. The foam's, you know, really consistent. Um, EPS is fine, uh, but, you know, it just has, it's the same problems that we had the first time around through the early 70s and the 80s. It's still basically the same issues we still have today. Sure. You know, the materials might be a little more consistent, but, you know, you still have the same issues of gassing, delaminating, mm -hmm. you know, yellowing, discoloring. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, you just, you can't, with, with poly, you know what you're going to get. Right. You know, it's very consistent. Um, you do a lot of interesting stringer glue-ups and colored foam inserts and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Talk to me about that. What are, are there um, inherent performance Variations or benefits to that, or is it strictly aesthetics? Or um, for certain for certain types of boards, yeah, definitely wood combinations and rockers. Uh, you know, I try to formulate you know for the correct kind of like spring with the different type of glassing schedules. Um, for the most part, yeah. On the short boards, I've been using mainly all uh, apple core because I really like the the engineered. Uh, you know, process behind it pretty much. I mean, they might not look at it as engineered, but I kind of look at it like laminated beams. Yeah. You know, like for homes, you know, it's it's a lot stronger when you have thinner pieces of wood glued together, you know. Yeah. As opposed to one solid piece. Right. You know, you're going to be able to hold more. Yeah. And it has a little bit more life. It seems like it lasts a lot longer. Okay. The actual pop in the board. Yeah. Um, and then with the colored foam, I, I like, you know, adding that little colored accent to some boards and it adds a little bit of density down the midline right you know for certain boards where you need a lot of board where you want the board to recenter itself you know so you have a little bit of density in the middle mm -hmm. nose riders uh, boards with the, like holes mm -hmm. it's nice to have a little density down the center part of the board so a little so high weight. density foam yeah <clears throat> t-bands absolutely work really well yeah yeah all the um you do a fantastic job with imagery and the aesthetics like on instagram all the images you post are oh, beautiful good. oh <laughs> like the boards themselves are beautiful but even the photography is great you know yeah that's another hobby i used to enjoy <laughs> photography but you know now i just now i just use my iphone they're just all iphone photos so the iphone is totally <laughs> adequate yeah for instagram 
That's awesome. So are all these photos yours too? Uh, yeah, these are just all just you know local guys. Yeah. A lot of these are like Chris Wells. He's an he's an old uh, real local, well known local ripper kid. You know, grew up surfing um, through the PSAA's. And, yeah, yeah. You know the amateur series and could have went on to pro. But uh, at heart, he's pretty much a soul surfer. So what's your current relationship like with surfing? Like, how often do you surf and um, all that? Surfing, well, lately I haven't been able to surf very much because I've, I've got uh, degenerative disc disease on my back, and uh, I'm all beat up. Related got, to shaping? Uh, God, you know, it's probably just everything, yeah, you know, yeah. shaping, you know, rot blown out rotator cuffs in both my shoulders. Yikes. You know, hip, you know, hips starting to go out. Just, yeah, just... Run hard, you know. No, <laughs> Put I away hear wet. You. I hear you. <laughs> but that's what this industry does to you. It you does. Know, they don't realize. You don't realize it because it, it. It's a young man's kind of a job, or it used to be. Yeah. And uh, so you know, you just it's just manual labor, man. Manual like manual labor, yeah, like anything else. Yeah. yeah. My the nerves on my elbow have been shot for years, so the fingertips, you know, are numb. So are you still able to surf or just less nah, and less? No, not 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 as much, no. Bummer. I mean, if it, yeah, it's a bummer, but you know, I was depressed for a while, you know, when I when I couldn't surf and, you know, you for me it's I could probably surf if I really wanted to, but the risk of like injuring myself or if my back goes out, I'm the only person here running this business. Right. So, you know, as I get older, I have to think about that also, you know. Yeah. So I'm not a spring chicken. I just turned 57, so <laughs> if I'm lucky, I might do this for five more years, you know, if yeah. I'm lucky. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would love to continue to do it, but, you know, yeah. it's catching up to me. Do you still have additional careers that you're maintaining, or are you strictly shaping now? Uh, no, I'm, I'm, this is, shaping is pretty much it now. Full yeah, time. yeah. Cool. Yeah, I enjoy just shaping, you know. I've kind of reverted back to my youth again. Yeah, awesome. Just kind of come back, you know. Full circle. Full circle. Exactly. Wayne Akamoto. His website is oakfoils.blogspot.com. And be sure to follow his Instagram feed, at Oakfoils. There's a ton of really visually stunning surfboards there. Definitely check that out. And, of course, visit SurfSplendorPodcast.com, where we have links to all of those things and the photos and videos to accompany every episode of Surf Splendor. We also actually have a Spotify music archive with music playlists from every episode in case you've ever wondered about the music in a particular show uh, this particular song is broken social scene anthems for a 17 year old girl by the way and also be sure to leave a comment in the comment section of today's episode i will make sure that maurice and wayne see your comment that you leave for them and as always just keep sharing the show with friends that's your way to invest in the show's future We'll do all the legwork of producing content and driving to the locations and interviewing the people, but you are our marketing machine. The more listeners we have, the more guests we can attract, and eventually, the more shows we can produce. Imagine two episodes a week. Lastly, 
Shout out to Owen for his two perfect heats in Fiji. Holy crap, that was unbelievable. We'll recap the entire thing on next week's show. Until then, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor, encouraging you to shred on.